Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the Actus podcast, Talking CDI, the nation's only program dedicated to the clinical documentation integrity profession. The Actus podcast is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bring you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and Actus. Today, Wednesday, July 15th, marks our 157th program. Today's featured Actus solution, as you should be seeing on your screens, is CDI and quality reporting, how healthcare record review can improve outcomes. Quality of care, as we know, is an emerging area of expansion for CDI programs and professionals as healthcare continues to move toward value-based purchasing and pay-for-performance reimbursement models. CDI efforts can target some of these risky diagnoses associated with those quality of care measures to ensure that ongoing CDI reviews don't negatively affect quality scores of various types. Um, so we're recommending that you might want to take a look at this book. We're going to be talking about it today on today's program with the authors themselves. It's a comprehensive guide to advance to the next level of CDI, not just diagnosis review and clarification, but how diagnoses affect hospital quality metrics and influence indirect revenues. Okay, so my name is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Integrity Specialists, and I'm your host for today's program, CDI and Quality Reporting. I'm joined today by my co-host at left of your screen there, Don Valdez. Don is a Clinical Documentation Integrity Education Specialist for us here at Actus and HC Pro. She serves as a full-time instructor for the CDI boot camps and a subject matter expert for Actus. She has more than 20 years experience in the healthcare industry, including ICU nursing, legal nurse consulting, and was a large manager for uh, a nurse manager for a large third-party administrator for which she initiated a nurse audit program. And I'm glad to have her back on the show today. So welcome, Dawn. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. All right. All right. Next, I'd like to introduce our special guest today. We have with us Deanne Wilk. Deanne is manager of CDI at Penn State Health in Hershey, Pennsylvania. You might recognize Deanne. She's been an active supporter in many ways. Um, but first, a little bit about her background in CDI. Her experience spans 35 years in the healthcare field, nursing background, including telemetry and home health nursing, uh, from original CDI role, transition to consulting and management. And now she's back again as manager of CDI at Penn State. She's been an Actus Advisory Board member. Had her on this program before, and I'm glad to have her back. So welcome, Deanne. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. All right. And also today with us is Ashley Vahey. Ashley is the CDI team lead, also at Penn State Hershey Medical Center. Uh, she graduated from Moravian College in 2007 with a Bachelor of Science in Nursing has spent her entire career at Penn State Hershey Medical Center, where she has held various positions, including direct care nurse, clinical head nurse, infection prevention practitioner, and now CDI specialist. And I understand she's been in that role for the past five years, and I'm glad to have her on her first program. So welcome to the show, Ashley. Thanks, Brian. Happy to be here. Okay. Like we always do, we're going to start with a poll question related to today's topic. So I'm going to go ahead and get that launched. This is a 
check all that apply options. You can check multiple if you'd like, but we're asking today, uh, which of the following quality-based programs are a focus of your CDI department? Check all that apply. So do you focus on hacks, which are hospital-acquired conditions? A, this is gonna be alphabet soup coming up here, but HVBP, value-based purchasing, HRRP, which is readmissions reductions, the AHRQ quality indicators, for example, PSIs, or other. So again, which of the following quality-based programs are a focus of your CDI department? You can check all that apply. And if there is an other that you have, um, please do message it to us during the show. I'm gonna to try to work those in when we come back to the poll results after our interview with Deanne and Ashley. So it looks like we've got close to 70% of our audience has now voted. So I'm gonna go ahead and close this poll out and we will return to the results and see where you guys are with quality in just a few minutes. Okay. As I mentioned, Deanne and Ashley are our special guests today. Welcome to the show, guys, and uh, thanks again for being a part of the podcast today. Glad to have you. I thought we could start with some some background on, on the CDI program at Penn State. Um, you guys have been around for a few years now, so maybe just how long you've been in existence, your current staffing and staffing mix, but also uh, your your current focus on quality, which I know is a big part of what you guys do at Penn State, and and um, when you made that switch and, and how you're currently measuring it. So a lot to start there with, but maybe I'll toss this over to Deanne to start, and then we can have Ashley add her, her opinion here. Okay. So uh, the program at Penn State was initially started around 2008 with uh, just a few CDI specialists that fell under the health information department. And then in 2015, um, which is the time that I came on board, the program was expanded and was also uh, moved to the quality department. So our team consists of 20 uh, registered nurses and we have five physician advisors at this time, which um, I'll share a little bit more about that later. Um, and we review all service lines. We're a service line-based um, department. We work with uh, individual service lines. Staff are assigned to one or more service lines. We review 100% of records, and we review all payers. So we look at every admission that comes in the door at least one time. So our program initially started, even in 2014, the few staff that we had, we initially started looking at PSIs, and that's really what our tie was to quality at the time before they moved us. And we started looking at patient safety indicators. That was really the, the first aspect. And um, then we moved on to um, different quality measures, which I'm going to turn that over to Ashley because she was very integral in uh, working on the mortalities. So I'll let her share how she became involved in that. She was actually part of the original group of CDI and uh, her movement towards mortality and our other measurements that we've had. Great. Thanks, Dan. Um, 
so when we um, initially started looking at our data, we started to um, recognize that we had some opportunities in our ODE um, for mortality and uh, most recently length of stay. So um, we participate in Visient, so we were using that data at the time. Um, but once we started to really dive into the um, mortality data, we, we recognized that the expected could be really impacted by the documentation. So that was where we first started just reviewing, uh, risk adjusting those patients who had actually expired. And then as we learned more about that, we started risk adjusting every patient. So that's where we're out at now. And we've recently expanded to length of stay to risk adjust for length of stay for all patients. Um, <clears throat> and then as the PSI grew, the PSI review grew, our physician advisor actually started to have peer-to-peer -peer conversations with physicians regarding their uh, specific PSIs and where there may be clinical opportunities, which um, really has impacted our, our clinical care for, for all those surgical patients that are impacted. All right, great, thanks, Ashley. Appreciate it, Dan. Mm -hmm. So, Dan and Ashley, I, I, by the way, I am reading your book and I'm on chapter four and I'm loving the graph that you guys have. Uh, for those of you who don't have it, they have a uh, measure and then they define it with uh, relevant factors and then they give you examples, which I think is, is really great on all the different measures because it sure does beat the CMS site. Um, so that said, what I'm really interested in is how CDI can make an impact with the quality outcomes because you know you guys have a lot of experience you're really great on those quality measures but we have all types of different programs across the nation and a lot of them are smaller and they don't have access to the education or the physician advisors like you guys have so how can cdi make an impact on quality outcomes and then if you could give me an example or how they can impact specifically let's just start with the hospital value-based purchasing program as one yeah, so um, CDI can have an amazing impact on quality measures. I believe in our first year, um, when we were looking at our rankings, our national rankings, um, because we took the plunge and risk adjusted on our mortality, we actually went from number 78 to number five in the nation in the first year. Wow. So that definitely gives credence for the impact on that expected that CDI absolutely has on the population. And one of the things we emphasized in the book multiple times is to really capture those risk factors, get them um, up in the sequencing in order for you to have um, those reported. Um, otherwise, you know, if the risk factors fall to the wayside down at the bottom, they're not getting recorded. But mm -hmm. absolutely, CDI can have a lot of impact on your quality, on all your quality measures. So one of the things that we did in particular with value-based purchasing, you know, a lot of that is uh, when we look at that, the readmission measure. And we worked early on with two different groups in particular. One was our orthopedic group. 
in order to really look at those charts and, and the surgeons were great about this in having discussion with us on the nuances of the procedures, the diagnoses that they were listing as the principal, because that's really what was making those patients fall into the bundle. And we found that um, in, you know, definition of principal diagnosis, some of the conditions they had listed didn't apply. Uh, in particular on cardiology, the same thing. We looked at that initial admission to really reflect, was this the correct principal diagnosis? And a lot of your utilization management programs will bring the patient in under the criteria of, say, CHF, but really the patient's in, say, respiratory failure, and that's where the crux of care was for the admission. So really looking at that initial admission to make sure that it's accurate. And then on your readmissions, if you look at your planned um, readmissions, they can fall out of the bundle that way. But really the bundle is about patient care. And we worked a lot with orthopedics. They did a, an amazing job really looking at their patient population and guiding that care from admission to discharge. And then not only that, on post-discharge, working with the SNFs and the rehabs. So we had a lot of effect um, on the bundle programs as well. Wow, that's really interesting. Great information. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. And you said first year moved from number 78 to number five in the nation. Yeah. One of those measures, that's amazing. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Um, switching gears just a little bit, and we'll come, come back to quality, although this definitely has a quality tie. Just addressing kind of the elephant in the room here with COVID-19, wondering um, how this might have impacted your quality scores. Have you had to put any of this quality focus on the back burner? Or, you know, conversely, has it reinforced quality concepts? You know, are you are you looking, is it more about co capturing COVID-19 accuracy and uh, for mortality and, and other purposes at this point? Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, you know, aside from transitioning to remote work, there's really been no, no change or decrease in our quality reviews. Um, we did start looking at all those COVID patients and doing second reviews to make sure we were capturing them. Um, you know, our census went down, but I think, um, we continued to maintain our quality, um, focus and, um, like I mentioned, with our physician advisors having peer-to-peer -peer conversations, you know, they just sort of seamlessly also transitioned into a remote capacity and continued to meet with those providers um, remotely. Okay. I don't think I don't think COVID really had any sort of impact. We didn't really miss a beat. We just took it and ran with it. Yeah, I would agree with that. The team's done very well with that. Great. Thanks. I think one of the, yeah, one of the things that you guys keep mentioning that is really getting my attention is the advocacy that your physician advisors are doing in that peer-to-peer -peer role, which I think is a cornerstone of success, which kind of segues into my next question. You know, for, for people that are interested into branching out further into quality, but they really don't know the best way or what's needed. And, and I'm thinking of these smaller, you know, programs that may or may not have physician advisors. What's the best way to sell this approach to administration so they can get the ball rolling? 
Uh, I think diving into your data is probably the best way to to do that. Um, and you know, when we first started this process, there were a lot of physicians that didn't really believe that we were 78th in the nation, like Deanne mentioned. Um, they didn't really believe that their the care they were providing was subpar. Um, and once we uncovered a lot of the documentation problems, they had a lot of buy-in um, in our department and started to really become more engaged. And then once we got you know more physician engagement and they wanted us to look at more things and do more things and you know um, participate in everything we could, it really helped to kind of sell us and showed how important our department is in the institution. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I don't think we mentioned that um, we all, the physician advisor we have for PSIs, but we also added on more recently in the last year a mortality physician advisor. So we actually have um, two physician advisors that their full-time focus are quality measures working with our department, which has been instrumental in, you know, addressing Mm -hmm. So you cleaned up the data, you got the data down, down, and then you were able to show the results to get some buy-in for the physicians. Absolutely. That, okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Got some good questions coming through from the audience. Maybe we'll just take one of these before we wrap up with a little book discussion. But um, someone's asking how you you mentioned actually diving into data. How, how do you get that? Is that is it Vizient data or some type of other proprietary program or something you're able to get abstracted? Um, how are you able to get at um, that? We used Vizient data for a lot of this. Um, you know, we have participated in some other projects that were based on, you know, CMS data, uh, which sort of lags behind a little bit, but, um, you know, you can still see improvement um, and we we did some we we did work on some projects from private payer data um, where there was a quality focus. Um, for example, we worked on uh, seven day follow up appointments and in order to reduce readmissions, um, stuff like that. You can really use any kind of data. It just might take you a little longer to see the impact if you're using, say, CMS data. Right. Um, just because of the lag in in you know, it's like two years behind. Gotcha. Okay. Well, let's just wrap up briefly again. Uh, the name of the book we've been um, referring to on today's show, I sent it around to the listeners in a little chat here, but it's CDI and Quality Reporting, How Healthcare Record Review Can Improve Outcomes. Um, can you explain to you guys a little bit about what went into that book? I know it's probably intimidating to be an author of a book and a lot of work went into this. I know a lot of back and forth with one of our editors and maybe you could talk about just the experience of writing the book and, and maybe what you're most proud of. I know Deanne, you referred in, in our pre-call here to, to, to the last chapter, why that might be. So uh, some, some inside uh, baseball on, on how, how you guys got this book written and published. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, we knew what we wanted to say. We we were very clear from the beginning what we wanted to talk about. Um, and that was primarily because we knew what we were looking for um, years ago that we didn't know. 
um, and the research that we had to do. And and you're right, Dawn, CMS can be very daunting. You know, their website is, you can really, you know, get lost in all of the different links within there. So we really wanted to present a very quick and easy guide for people to understand about these quality measures and really to share the things that we've learned. Um, as an author, um, this was really my first experience in writing a book. I've written, you know, numerous articles before, but um, Ashley and I really collaborated well on this book. Um, it was it was very uh, it was a big project. Um, it was a lot of information, a lot of detailed information, but we're very proud of how it turned out. And yes. Um, I am very proud of our last chapter, uh, which I think is the best chapter in the book because it really presents a very uh, detailed plan uh, for how to build these programs um, with each of the measures. So we looked at PSIs, mortality, length of stay, readmissions, and then we also get some insight into other measures that programs can look at. All right. How about you, Ashley? Anything else to add about the experience? Was Deanna, um, was Deanna decent co-author co, uh, co <laughs> to work with? <laughs> yeah, she was great. Um, I, I really learned a lot, I think, um, about how important the work that we did was um, and how important it continues to be, you know, as more payment is tied to quality and things like that um, and, you know, payment reduction and um, incentives and um, really like how much work we've done. I I realized, you know, when you when you're doing it every single day, it doesn't seem like very much. But at the end, when I compiled all this stuff, it's it. You know, I was really proud of all the work our team has done and how much um, everyone worked to to achieve all the quality goals that we achieved. Mm -hmm. And I'm really good at navigating the Medicare or CMS website now. <laughs> well, that's a skill. You put, yeah, put, that's put a class skill. in itself. <laughs> put, it, put it on your resume because yeah. not you do that. That's yeah. right. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, let's wade back into our poll question again. Um, so again, we asked folks which of the following quality-based programs are a focus of your CDI department. Kind of a widespread here, but majority, 83% say hacks are, are a focus, those hospital-acquired conditions, followed closely by AHRQ quality indicators, your PSIs at 75%, um, and then a reasonably sized drop to uh, readmission reductions at 29%, 28% say hospital value-based purchasing, and then 11% other. So curious if you guys had any thoughts on the poll and anything surprising here or not. I'm going to just take a quick peek at what we did get for other responses. This is Dawn. It's not a surprise to me at all. This kind of follows the pathway of how I was introduced as a CDI through the hacks and the PSIs, uh, value-based purchasing, which is one of the reasons why I asked that question specifically about that, because I think a lot of people don't really have a really good understanding mm -hmm. of what to do, what, how, how to affect it, you know, how to handle this from a CDI perspective, as well as readmissions. Right. A couple other. Yeah, I agree. Oh, sorry. I agree. I mean, I think the, um, 
I'm excited to see that there's so much work being done on readmissions because I think there's real opportunity there. A lot of organizations have measurements on their length of stay, but they don't realize that looking at your readmissions is really what's going to also impact your length of stay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a couple others that in the other category were ambulatory CDE, they look at HCCs, uh, mortality, second level reviews, mortality risk adjustment was there for quite a few times actually. I put it, probably put that in the poll. Um, work directly with ACO. So some interesting other responses there. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and close that out. And at this point, we're gonna switch over to our in the news segment. And while we do that, pull that up on your screen here. Um, so in the news is a regular segment featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession. Today, I wanted to discuss this article that appeared on actus.org uh, back in actually just last month on June 18th. Um, it is a recap of a study that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. I would like to say JAMA. Uh, the article is here. As I always do, I will share the links in the show notes uh, when we post the recording of today's program. But, it's, but the article in short is uh, a study that shows that 20% of patients are identifying their own EHR errors, research shows. So this was a study of you know, quite a big cohort here, 136,000 patients, um, tw more than 29,000 provided a response to the survey. Patients must have had, have had at least one ambulatory note and logged into their online medical portal at least once in the last 12 months. So with that criteria, they got about 20, 22, 23,000 qualified responses. So of those, responses of those patients, uh, more than 4,800 or 21% reported a perceived mistake, and 2,000 of those reporting a mistake, or 42%, reported that the mistake was serious. 1,500 1, said the mistake was somewhat serious, and 480 noted the mistake as very serious. Um, this does get into some of the uh, respondents here, and um, Female patients, more educated patients, sicker patients, those, 85, uh, those aged 45 and older were more likely to report a mistake. Uh, the researchers wrote that after categorization of patient reported very serious mistakes, those specifically mentioning the word diagnosis or describing a specific error in current or past diagnosis were most common. Um, and they run through here, the study runs through some of the mistakes, including inaccurate medical history, inaccurate medications or allergies, test procedure results, um, and of those ones that were uh, very serious errors, 58% included at least one perceived error associated with the diagnostic process, history, physical exam, test referrals. So obviously this has some tie into what the work of CDI professionals. Um, really, I, I thought, I wanted to share this article because I thought, you know, one of the things we don't necessarily talk so much about, we, we talk a lot about EHR adoption, transparency of health data, but really mostly in regards to sharing that data, you know, hospital to hospital or hospital to payer, but relatively little about greater patient access and the possibility of patients seeing things 
you know, maybe even, for example, a query that's made a permanent part of the medical record. So curious what you guys might have to say about this particular article, whether you've encountered anything along these lines or whether it's something you expect to see more as we continue to have more transparency with uh, health records. Yeah, I would say that um, truly because of that transparency that, that patients are, you know, they are a little more savvy, especially with a lot of the patient portals, you know, patients are seeing that. And I know Ashley's had personal experience with um, her own record and her children's record, so. Right. Yeah. yeah. The patient portals were one of the criteria for this article, but one of the things that come to mind after I was looking at the different percentages and different categories is, you know, this really drives home the importance of clinical validation from a CDI standpoint. That's how I think, this is just my personal opinion, I think that's how we can really impact uh, some of these things. Now, we can't control the answers, but we do have the onus to ask the questions when we see clinical indicators that don't equal, perhaps, um, you know, what's being documented or doesn't support, rather, is a better way to say that. So. That was my takeaway from this one. I, I think it's pretty significant. And I think we're going to see more of it too. Mm -hmm. In reading the, you know, the whole article, the JAMA article itself, it talks, it talks a little bit about copy and paste and the, um, the errors that are found when, when physicians copy and paste their notes. I thought that that was kind of an interesting thing um, discussed in the, in the summary. It's right. very true. There's been so many times when I've looked at medical records and I'm going through the progress note and there's a copy paste function there. But then if I go and check the ancillary notes, such as medications or labs, you know, either the lab was canceled, the medication wasn't given, it was discontinued, right. you know, things change, but yet the progress notes don't reflect any of that in a, a lot of cases. So I think it's very prudent that, you know, as CDI, we kind of branch out into that record review into those other ancillary areas, I think we could catch a lot of this stuff that way and clarify the record up front, help those physicians as we can. Right. Good stuff, guys. This is, this here is the um, original study in JAMA. So they do have at least partially available here, the abstract and results. So check it out. Again, I'll include the link in the show notes. I know we're just about a time here, but I, I did, I'm hoping our audience could stick around for just a couple more minutes. Had something important I wanted to talk about in our Actus update. Um, so all of us here on the Actus team are, are staunch advocates of equal opportunity and inclusion and fierce opponents of racism. Uh, back in June, we published a statement in this issue of CDI strategies that I'd like to reread here uh, for you all. It, this Our statement reads, like most Americans and citizens of the world, the staff of Actus were outraged at the tragic deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery. Sadly, their deaths are only a few in a long line of similar acts of violence perpetrated against people of color. They're a visceral visual symbol of the deeper underlying problem of systemic racism operating in our society. We stand with the American Public Health Association's unequivocal statement that racism is a public health issue. To address this issue, we believe change is needed in all industries, including our own relatively small corner of healthcare. We want you to know that Actus is committed to doing ongoing work to help address racism and find ways to ensure that underrepresented groups receive equal opportunities, both within our association and the industry at large. 
We're committed to the process and to being transparent and rigorous as we move forward. Um, and frankly, right now, we're, we're, we're looking for help and input on this. Um, we feel like we're in a unique position to help address this public health crisis, uh, both in the CDI community and in the broader healthcare community. So um, I wanted to take this opportunity to announce that we're going to be forming a standing diversity and inclusion diversity and inclusion task force. Uh, this committee will consist of members of the black community and other minority groups to ensure ACTUS is doing everything in its power to promote diversity and inclusion. Um, secondly, we recognize that one of the most powerful things we can help with as an association is by using our platform, for example, the ACTUS podcast, uh, to promote the voices and stories of members of the black community and other minorities within our profession. So I'm frankly looking for folks who might want to share their stories um, as a minority in the CDI profession on the podcast, um, lead discussions on this issue. I think the first step to understanding this is listening and not assuming you know. I, I like to think that we've done a good job promoting diversity within Actus. We do have a relatively diverse membership. But that, of course, is is my opinion, and and um, it could be clouded and inaccurate. So we're we're definitely looking for people who want to step forward, and have their voices heard on our various platforms, of which we have many. We have we're doing virtual conferences and podcasts. So if you fit any of the above categories and are interested in either serving on the diversity and inclusion task force, or perhaps even appearing on an episode of the Actus podcast on this topic. You can reach out to me directly at bmurphy@actus.org. Uh, finally, please know that Actus is a welcoming place, and we want to be a platform and an amplifier of diverse vo voices in the CDI profession and the broader healthcare community. Okay, so that will do it for today's edition of the Actus podcast. We're going to be back here again in two weeks with a session on volunteerism on and personal growth with a couple um, leaders of, a, of two of our local chapters of Actus. Just as a reminder, you can listen to the show recordings uh, anytime on our website or via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Spotify. <laughs> and we do post the recordings on actus.org, usually the day following the live show. So if you have any suggestions for future guests, ideas about the format of the show, again, please email me at bmurphy at actus.org. I want to thank uh, Deanne and Ashley and, of course, Don for coming on the show today. And for everyone else, we'll see you back here again in two weeks. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Brian.